HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Franco Lania's Minnesota Wild Rice Griddle Cakes. For more information, visit francolania.com. This is Michael Harlan Turkel, host of The Food Scene. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum from the Brooklyn Kitchen, a cooking store located at 100 Frost Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Join me every Wednesday as I talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org and on iTunes. You can follow us on Instagram at feast.yr.ears. Today is episode 19 of Feast Your Ears. Joining me in the studio today is Samir Patel, who's deputy editor of Archaeology Magazine. Samir has written about archaeology and uh, exploring our history for the last 10 years or so. Thanks, Samir, for joining me in the studio today. Thanks for having me, Harry. So I usually start out um, by asking people what they do. I usually know what my guests do, but I like to have it explained in their own words uh, uh, for, 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 uh, for the listeners. Here, what's right. Well, I, um, I'm a magazine journalist and editor. I write, edit, commission, photograph, travel to report on uh, stories about archaeology. And uh, so I do feature stories in the main part of the magazine and also um, am the editor of the front of the magazine, which has smaller pieces about news. Um, and so I try to, we, we try with a relatively small staff to cover the whole world and a millennia worth of history um, through the kind of material culture that archaeologists do. Uh, dig up when they when they go out in the field nice i was fascinated with archaeology and more specifically with paleontology when i was uh, when i was much much younger when mm -hmm. i was you know six seven eight nine years old dinosaurs right, right. sort of caught my attention um and i of course at the time thought that everything about being in that field was being out in the field being out digging things up and discovering giant bones and sort of finding artifacts yeah. and i did an internship when i was 12 or 13 with a, a paleontologist uh at uh, the peabody 
at mm-hmm. Yale. Oh, cool. And discovered very quickly that most of the work, in fact, was sitting at a desk and writing grants in a windowless office. Yeah. It's not <laughs> actually the sort of excitement of being out in the right. wilderness finding things. Well, one of the great things about my job, though, is I, I get to uh, kind of parachute in on some of these digs and show up for, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a few days or a week and visit a couple uh, in exotic locations sometimes um, and don't have to do a lot of the, the 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 difficult, both physical and analytical work. So I don't have to be, you know, analyzing data necessarily right. afterward. And I certainly don't have to turn over shovels full of dirt and spend entire days on my knees. <laughs> that's um, really, that's, uh, that's really neat. Right. Um, do you, so what, is there a, is there a time limit if, of history that Archaeology Magazine covers? I mean, is there is there a point where you sort of stop? Uh, well, I mean, archaeology as a discipline is specifically related to the material culture um, and remains of humans. So it's got to go back as far as humans do. Um, that said, there is a little bit of a, a crossover into what we call paleoanthropology, which is study of ancient man. So, I don't know, a couple million years, sure. you know, to when we can start calling things that are evolving into people, you know, um, man, at least, yeah, at least human precursors. Yeah. Um, and then on the other end of that, I mean, you know, like rotary dial telephones, do those count as like <laughs> something that would be covered in archaeology? This is, you know, it's actually, it's funny. Um, there's probably a, a traditional kind of line that uh, says that archaeology needs to be of a certain age. Um, it's never something I've believed because I think that we're constantly creating material culture and archaeology is all around us. Um, and so I'm always looking for these contemporary historical um, stories as well. So I've written about uh, modern graffiti hmm. and looking at that in an archaeological context in terms of actually studying it as an artifact of humans. Um, and I just recently did a piece on cigarette butts because um, there's a researcher at Connecticut College who, as a project for his students, had them go outside of bars in, uh, in Connecticut and collect cigarette butts over a long period of time and establish this giant data set that the students could work with so that they could see how you um, establish the types of artifacts and what you can learn about the culture, for example, of a a punk bar versus the culture of a sports bar by looking at their cigarettes. Um, And so it's, it's, it's an exercise, but they're actually coming up with some interesting data out of stuff like that. So I think that uh, I I don't like to put a limit on when archeology span ends, but there's often, you know, we'll get readers who have a a bit of a beef when I do those more contemporary (laughs) stories. Um, But I think in general, people probably find it pretty interesting and it's a new way to look at, you know, our history and our culture and yeah. realize that we're, we're constantly creating archeology. span Right. Right. Uh, as yeah, well. All the time. Um, so Samir and I met a few years ago. Um, Samir was working at the time on an article, um, about butchers and, and prehistoric man, right? Yeah. This would have been less about butchers and more about the tools. Tools. Actually. Right. Yeah. Right. So the, the, the tools that prehistoric man would have used in relationship to cutting up animals mm-hmm. and approached, uh, myself and my, my partners at the meat hook to test, stone tools on an animal that was theoretically similar to something that an early man might have might have been able to sure, kill and yeah. uh we used a, a whole lamb um that we were able to source with the skin still on um and had you know tom mylan who was who was then one of the one of the butchers at the meat hook basically take apart this whole lamb yeah. using stone tools instead of metal knives right right and th- this grew out of a, a story that was about the tools but really um you know, I first encountered these stone tools when I was on a reporting trip in India. And one of the grad students uh, who was there was a flint napper. And that's what you call 
people who make these stone tools. And today there's, there's lots of flint nappers, um, most of them recreational. So they're trying to make cool arrowheads and sort of fancy things, but there's a subset of archeologists who are experimental archeologists. And what they do is they try to recreate ancient technologies. And so I was kind of fascinated when he started showing me how you do this thing, you know, and you essentially uh, take two rocks and hit them together, yeah, right? I mean, that's sort of it. Together, right? but there's so many subtleties, <laughs> right. you know? And so I decided uh, at that time to try and do a story, which actually hasn't, I haven't seen all the way through quite yet, um, uh, but uh, about learning how to flint nap and about what experimental uh, archaeology uh, with regard to stone tools teaches us because for this huge swath of human history, we're talking about going back to two million years, for the vast majority of that time between then and now, the primary artifact, and in a lot of cases, the only artifact we have that survives is stone. And, and so these tools are hugely important for understanding uh, everything from how our brains develop um, to what we were eating uh, sure. back then um, to where people were and what kind of cultures they had. So um, I wanted to learn how to do this. So I went and trained with a couple of really legendary, um, uh, at least one really legendary uh Flint napper, academic flint napper, um, and then the guy that I met in um, in India, who is becoming one of one of those as well, um, and spent just a week, you know, just knocking rocks together, uh, and it's it's fun, it's interesting, it's cool because every one is this little geometric puzzle hmm. that you're trying to figure out how to hit this thing to get the you know the the, the outcome that you want, right, uh, and not shatter it and destroy it, and um, and that type of that technology of, of flint napping existed for millennia, right? Absolutely. I mean, um, it goes back to before we were modern humans. Right. Um, the oldest stone tools, which um, they think they've identified in Kenya recently, um, I don't remember the date offhand, but we're talking, you know, millennia and millennia ago, sure. uh, where people are knocking rocks together to make something more useful out of it. Right. Um, so, I mean, the, the comparison, you know, as I think about it is that, you know, the, the modern knife, I mean, alloyed steel, I mean, iron, iron at, in itself doesn't actually make a particularly good sharp blade. Right. So, I mean, if you think about alloyed steel, you know, I mean, what are we really looking at in alloyed steel? Maybe a thousand years, 2000. Uh, I mean, really not less. I yeah, think, yeah. I mean, very, you know, I think the, the bladesmithing in Japan goes back about 1100 years. They've mm -hmm. traced it back. So, I mean, that's. You know, that's pretty much it. So that's a, we've had knives as we understand them today for a much shorter amount of time. Right, right. But that extremely sharp cutting implement, you know, yep. goes goes back much further. And is um, once you know how to do it, relatively easy to get a sharp cutting uh, surface. But there are really complicated technologies. Like the one that I was trying to work on is this Neanderthal stone technology called Lavawa, which is named after a site in France where they found these tools. And it takes... Uh, so much time to set up the core, which is what you're knocking the blades off of, uh, in order to make one strike that would then pop off this particular kind of blade that's sharp all the way around and has kind of a haft on the end of it. Um, and that's a, I mean, that, that takes a lot of planning and a lot of forethought right. and a lot of understanding of geometry and how stone breaks and all these other things. Um, so it's, uh, even though these are you know, quote unquote, primitive technology. Sure. There's a, there's a lot of thought and a lot of technology and experience that goes into, into making them. And it seems like there must, I mean, I have to imagine that in the, in the realm of those Neanderthal who were making these things, I mean, mm -hmm. that, that object was incredibly important. It Absolutely. allowed for 
so much more. I mean, it allowed you to cut things like meat mm -hmm. and fish and, um, you know, plants. I mean, it, it allowed you to sort of change those in a way that you couldn't with your bare hands. Yeah. I mean, it's a matter of survival right. at, at some point. Um, because there's also the implements for personal defense and all these, you know, and hunting. Right. And so, yeah, extremely sophisticated uh, tools matter life and death, I think, at that point, because that's all you have. Right. In, in that, I mean, you know, to, to talk a little bit about that sort of, you know, that era sort of working off mm -hmm. of, off of the, the flint napping and the tools that you were working on. Um, do we know much about what those humans were, in fact, eating and cutting with those tools? Uh, we know some, you know, and it's a question of what preserves at what kind of sites. So certainly bones can preserve. And we find uh, butchery marks on those bones, and, and they find them in the context of fire and other things and, and the tools themselves that would suggest that, okay, these were things that people were eating. And that goes across the spectrum of what you can imagine sort of edible hunted animals would be. They, you know, they just recently found a butchered mammoth in Michigan. I mean, there's mammoths, you know, that they were probably maybe not hunting or maybe they were hunting. We right. don't really know. They could have been scavenging them. But everything from that to small animals to fish bones, I mean, whatever will preserve in that context. And then we know a little bit about the plants they were eating uh, from pollen grains um, from these little bits of silica that are in plants called phytoliths that mm. preserve pretty well um, and residues on some of the stone tools and then once pottery you know residues in pottery right um, that tell us what people were eating what we do know from that is that uh, there was a huge range of what people were eating and you know food habits as far as we know back then were really heavily dependent on region and heavily dependent on uh, seasonality and availability. Um, so it's, it, it, and it's hard to tell what kind of proportions they were eating different things in. So sure. um, there's a great body of knowledge and field of study sort of surrounding that. Um, and there's a, there's some cool things that are starting to happen in science right now. In fact, I'm going to be working on a, a story very soon about looking at uh, dental calculus. So plaque, on your teeth, which actually preserves really well and has a tendency to preserve dietary proteins oh. and other things. So there's ways to look at actual human remains to determine what people were eating as well. Were they eating nuts? Were they eating meat? Were they eating fish? Um, one of the things that they're able to look at this with, with this now is when and how did people start dairying to start drink, eating, uh, drinking milk and, right. and making milk related products and how that kind of spread because that's a much more recent development sure Ag agriculturally related most likely mm -hmm. right? um, i mean I, I wonder you know or at least some some amount of domestication i mean i know that in some areas you know there there are uh, cultures that drink like mare's milk so you know they mm -hmm. ride the horse and then they milk it and, yeah you know, it's both transport and and food source yeah. um and what about what about eating tools i mean do you, are, are there are there eating tools and how far back do those go to to my knowledge you know talk about ancient man yeah um i'm thinking contemporary of these knives and things that yeah yeah if, I, I mean i i actually don't know um about eating tools i suspect that they were probably using pieces of stone but also they could have been you know if they're using wood or other kinds of organic materials sure. they just they don't preserve so i think it's something that's pretty hard to find out and hands are pretty good for eating i mean there are still cultures now where Absolutely. there aren't eating tools they don't I, use spoons forks you know i knives. grew i grew up eating with my hands sure. um having a family that comes from india from western india that was that was how we ate so yeah, yeah. hand is a, is a good eating tool yeah. not so much a butchering yeah. not a very good butchering tool right 
Um, is there any evidence or do you know about whether or not those, you know, sort of early man or potentially when um, sort of meal time became a thing, like culturally? Obviously, that's a really hard thing. I mean, art, the art, you know, how, how one would know what the societal yeah. sort of mores were of early man is sort of impossible. I would yeah, I, I don't know that there's that much known about that, but it's pretty clear from inference and I think kind of common sense that, that a lot of these ancient cultures, particularly talking about early man, kind of revolved around food. It was just an essential part of both um, the work that they had to do, but also community building. And so I think there was a lot of communal sort of food uh, consumption. And and I think when you start to get into the history of uh, of human conflict, when you start to find evidence of that, uh, that probably comes in the terms of in terms of, of resource availability sure. and access to resources. So I think that huge, huge portions of of who we are today and what we know about ancient people revolves around food in some capacity. Right. But um, understanding that specific capacity uh, is is difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're going to take a, a brief break, um, and when we come back, we'll keep uh, keep talking about uh, food and tools and early man. Great. In 2013, Chef Franco Lania happily found himself in Marshall, Minnesota. Showing true Minnesota hospitality, Franco's hosts invited him to an afternoon of Midwest fun. They visited, among other things, a nearby bison farm and even a local shooting club. The only stipulation was that the men wanted a meal prepared by this master chef at the club's lodge. Franco worked his magic in the kitchen using locally available pumpkins, squashes, kale, bison steaks, and Minnesota wild rice. As a classically trained chef, Franco often made a risotto rice pancake. Franco substituted wild rice for the risotto and added some secret ingredients to his new recipe. Voila! Chef Franco's Minnesota wild rice griddle cakes were born. Now you too can enjoy these delicious griddle cakes and all the healthful benefits of wild rice. Purchase your very own box and help support a very time-honored American product, wild rice from Minnesota. For more information, visit francolania.com. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum. I've been speaking today with Samir Patel uh, about archaeology, early man, flint napping, some other things. Um, so I'm going to turn the conversation now uh, to uh, avocado. I, I understand, <laughs> Samir, that you don't actually really like avocado. Yeah, I feel like I'm the only one. Uh, although I like a good salty, spicy guacamole, but the slices of avocado sure. that end up on things. I feel like I'm the only person that doesn't like them. I mean, I, I like it. it I, I do find it interesting that it's become so ubiquitous. I mean, yeah. it is avocado toast and people talking about eating avocado and, and I don't, I mean, I don't know if it's specifically related, but I, you know, there, there's also, I feel like, um, you know, given your, your sort of body of knowledge, um, I need to bring up the paleo diet mm -hmm. uh, and mm -hmm. I feel like avocado plays somewhat heavily in that, I don't know if it's uh, if if it's something 
if that accounts for why avocados have gotten so popular. You know, <laughs> I but no, I don't know. Um, but I, you know, I wanted to talk for a minute about the about the the sort of paleo diet. I, sure. I, I, I meet a lot of people, obviously being in the grocery business, who come in and are, are very committed to the the paleo diet. And yeah. and I, you know, I'm not I'm not against it as a as a as an idea. I think that you know people have all kinds of food requirements they yeah. adhere to in one way or the other, and you know whatever makes you happy is fine with me. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's it is a little bit disingenuous though to say that you're you're living in 2016 in a way that our ancestors lived and to make the claim that our ancestors for some reason were healthier than we are now because of the way that they were eating i certainly less obese on on a on the by and large i would guess but yeah they probably they probably were um just because they didn't actually have all that much to eat right um but you know it's funny when uh i was doing that butchery experiment at, at brooklyn kitchen i made the joke that uh you could start selling authentic stone-cut meat to, right. the, to the paleo diet crowd. <laughs> and I think in general the paleo diet you know, uh, operates on that sort of level uh, when it comes to actual scientific basis for it. So, I mean, as, as a diet, um, I'm no nutritionist, but I've read a little bit about what they say about it. And, uh, you know, certainly cutting out processed sugars and things like these uh, – there, there's that's good right you now um but there's possibility for nutritional deficiencies in the diet but the idea that it's all based on humans evolved to eat this way um is scientifically speaking i mean it's preposterous uh we <laughs> as i mentioned before we don't actually know the proportions in the diets of right. of, of ancient people of paleolithic people and some of the uh, sort of basis is built on, okay, so modern hunter-gatherer societies, for example, um, who have very different diets. Yeah. Um, there's, there's no way to know what – and the idea that we had evolved to eat one diet, it doesn't make any sense because if there's anything we know about the way that ancient people ate, it was that they had to be flexible. And they had right. to be opportunistic yep. and they had to get calories wherever they could find them. Yeah. Um, so the idea that you wouldn't eat grains or legumes, you know, we have evidence that certain paleolithic societies did eat grains and legumes. Sure. So um, the idea that you would sort of arbitrarily kind of cut these things out doesn't doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Well, and, and, you know, what you mentioned earlier, which which to me sort of jumps out as one of the the biggest or most clear sort of aspects of the way that early man must have eaten is that it was incredibly local. Yeah. Even okay. though these people were nomadic, it was local to wherever they happened to be at that given moment, right? Yes, so, so the idea that 365 days a year eating uh, avocado <laughs> makes you closer to our historic man is really silly because only in modern, only in the modern age can we in New York get avocado 365 days right, a year. Right, right. Very regional, very seasonal, um, and very, like I said, opportunistic. So there are starvation foods, things that you turn to that you wouldn't unless, you know, your other resources aren't there. But the other thing that uh, makes it sort of strange to say we evolved to do this is that we're, like, evolutionarily speaking, different than Paleolithic man was. And a perfect example is lactose tolerance. That arose 7,000 years ago, uh, you know, among a subpopulation in Europe. So we are different evolutionarily speaking. Our, our microbiota, you know, which sure. increasingly is shown to have some kind of effects on health and, and digestion, uh, is very different yep. than what they were eating then. Well, even regionally now. Yeah, right? absolutely. I mean, absolutely. You know, people who, who are from different lineage 
of man, different places geographically in the globe are have evolved differently. Yeah, right? absolutely. And food is different um, because if you look at, uh, I mean, there. The, the thing that we know as an avocado now, I'll guarantee didn't look like that because we're constantly, you know, artificially selecting our food. Sure. Um, so any kind of meat we're eating now is a product of, of some kind of domestic domestication process. Yep. So it's different than wild foods. Um, the, the perfect example is that uh, broccoli, cabbage, Brussels sprouts, kale um, are all come from the same species. They right. all come from a plant. It's not a mustard. It's called wild mustard that maybe sort of paleolithic man ate. But, I mean, the idea that our foods somehow resemble what they were eating is it doesn't sure. make any sense either. That's, right. that's even a bigger difference. Is sure. The foods aren't, aren't the same as what right. they were then, and they yeah. can't be. Um, and they weren't buying food either. Right? No, <laughs> no, of course not. Of course not. And they didn't have to think about matters of sustainability right. um, because uh, among the different diets out there, I think the paleo diet is a particularly unsustainable one sure. in terms of its caloric output per, you know, um, per sort of natural resources that yep. go into creating it. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, I just, I, I felt like having you on the show, we had to, we had to sort of touch on of that course, a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I noticed in reading a bunch of your articles that um, you've covered shipwrecks quite a bit. Is, yeah. that, is that a personal interest of yours, or is that just how things have sort of gone editorial with, well, editorially with the magazine? In the it's a years? personal interest of mine, because I went into the job having um, relatively recently become a certified scuba diver and had, right before, the, you know, the year before I started working there, taken a long, I, I got a fellowship when I finished journalism school, I took a long trip and did a lot of wreck diving even before I came to archaeology as a subject. Um, and so that's something that in- instantly attracted me. Uh, for the adventure side of it, for the amount yeah. of stuff, it's just you, the underwater world is so stunning and amazing and um, get to see all kinds of cool things when you go diving on shipwrecks. There's no doubt about it. Um, so I've been on a couple of wrecks of pirate ships. Uh, most recently I was diving in Lake Huron, looking at sort of shipping in the Great Lakes. Mm. And so there's a lot of really, really cool stuff that comes out of the water. And it's something that I love doing both for the thrill and for the, you know, uh, the sense of discovery, because when you're down there and you're looking around, it's, you know, it's hard not to be completely wide eyed and befuddled by what you're seeing. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I've never, I've never been, I've never been diving on a, on a wreck or anything, but I was, as a kid, I was fascinated by that. I remember very clearly when the Titanic was found mm-hmm. and that that was such a huge deal because it was, you know, sort of the first modern super ship that wrecked and you yeah. know, the story, the stories behind it, obviously, and, and the way that the news traveled at the time. And, right. and so I remember that very clearly in the mid eighties when, when that was found yeah. and what a big deal that was and right. all the information about it. And, you know, and I had a, my father had a friend who was an antique dealer who used to show up at our house late at night with random things. <laughs> my dad is in, my dad is a, is a collector of things and my dad didn't purchase this particular item, but I remember very clearly as a kid right around when that happened, this guy named Ken Apollo showed up with a menu from the Titanic uh-huh. when it sank. Yeah. And I held it in my hands. As oh, a kid. that's really cool. And it was this incredible connection to sort of what was happening and, and all this stuff that I knew, like, like that's one tiny object from this giant ship, the rest of which is at the bottom of the ocean. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because, uh, the Titanic, a lot of people don't necessarily, because it's been, you know, James Cameron and all these, you know, uh, stuff around it. It actually, like, we can consider, and we had a piece on this a while ago written by a very uh, well-known maritime archaeologist about how the the Titanic is now, we can consider an archaeological site. Because despite its depth, 
technology has made it possible to do sort of high-resolution scans of the wreck and to start to look at items and things to, to learn more about how it went down, you know, various things. So it's you can you can now see that and some deep water, really deep water wreck sites as as true archaeological sites, despite their obvious difficulty of accessing right, them, right. Uh, which is really cool. Um, some really cool technology it's constantly kind of evolving in terms of what we're able to do with deep deep sites well deep cold water is a great preserver right so i mean uh, you know i i know that there's you know there have been ancient bottles of beer wine things like that found you know there was some beer i believe that came out of the bottom of the black sea yeah that you know it was 200 something years old and was perfectly preserved i mean it was encrusted with all kinds of sea life but it was a sealed bottle right right they've done uh i think tastings of some of these things that have been because they've found liquor uh beer um champagne um and in some cases uh, i i it's been opened and tasted and uh sometimes it's pretty well skunked and yeah. sometimes it, you know it still retains some of its flavor over time but yeah it's a the sea can be definitely a good preservative for some of that stuff if the seals are made intact yeah. Yeah. and also i would imagine of the rest of you know of the ships themselves of the wood of the tools of the other items um and you know i i have to you know also remembering from my childhood of like mm-hmm. going to the met and visiting the temple of dendor and all these things yeah. and i remember thinking about how like well this was in egypt right and then they brought it to new york city sure, and how yeah. weird that is and reading about all of the grave robbing and things like that so you know shipwrecks it's i mean the access you talk about is very difficult right and and that's what i guess that's always the draw of finding the pirate ship right that you're going to find the lost treasure but also from an archaeological standpoint i have to imagine the idea that it's never been touched yeah it's very cool and and there's uh, there is a a very uh contentious uh sort of world surrounding underwater archaeology with respect to salvage companies and the law of the sea and whether this is an archaeological site and how you treat an archaeological site. And there are private companies that go out and essentially look for treasure and different countries will make claims on it, depending on whose stuff it was and whether it was flotsam or jetsam that came out of the wreck. And so it's, uh, that is very fraught. Sure. Uh, Cause the, right. The law and the sea and the land are very different. Whereas I, I just read an article about London and how they're finding all kinds of Roman, ruins and things all the time when they're they're building these new buildings in london Mm -hmm. um and you know i I know to a lesser extent that happens here you know in new york i mean new york has been inhabited for a long time and whenever they build a new building downtown they find things but um you know but that's very clear it's on land right Mm -hmm. and so there's very clear laws that relate to whose it is and what you have to do in different countries uh based on so different countries have different laws about cultural patrimony if you find ancient stuff in italy it's the property of the government Whereas here, it's the property of the landowner. Hmm. So um, there are very different laws depending on Got the it. country that govern uh, sort of cultural remains. Um, and and there, was a, there was an article um, that I saw that you guys did, I think back in 2014, about mm-hmm. some castaways on a tiny little island yeah. in the Indian Ocean that I thought was fascinating. I mean, that, that there was a group of slaves, right, who were headed for Mauritius. Yes, yes. So this was... Um, I'm trying to. I, I wrote this story. I'm trying to remember the time frame because I go through this so much. I think it was late uh, 18th century, um, and it was a, a group of people that had been enslaved on Madagascar um, by these uh, uh, sort of traders, and they got shipwrecked on this island. Uh, this little speck, right? I mean, Trum- yeah, almost Trum- Trum- I mean, Trumelin Island, yeah. um, in the middle of the Indian Ocean, and the uh, the sort of white traders had sort of built a kind of rescue ship and they left 
and for uh, how was it eight years? Um, I think I think it was more. I think it was like twelve or fifteen yeah, years. These, this this time. small community kind of lived there. Um, as I remember, the thing that I found most interesting was the the, the article talks about. Um, some of the, the cooking and eating tools, I mean, you know, we're, we're at a point, I mean, we're all the way to the 18th century, so there are bowls and things like that. Yeah. But that there, w- there was a photograph with the article of a copper bowl that looked like it had been repaired like 85 times. Yeah. Where these people, you know, had, there were no resources. They're on a, a blank rock that just had like bushes. All they had was the stuff they got from the wreck. Right. Yeah. And, and so, you know, they had to make do with that and there were no more resources and there was nobody to trade with. And so that to me was sort of very interesting that this, this you know, community had managed to exist well and, bar- well, and barely survived yeah i mean let's be honest there was yeah. uh, like eight or nine that were right. left sure uh, by the time they did finally get rescued yeah. um and uh it was the the thing that stood out to me among that was the the, the homes that they had to, they had to build little homes for shelter and uh where they had come from in madagascar homes were built out of organic materials so wood and thatch and mud and whatever but and the only thing that was put in kind of a stone box was uh the dead were buried in these kind of the burial cysts and but in order to survive on this island all they had was stone so they essentially had to build themselves coffins graves graves. to live in and so that's i mean survival has a way of breaking down cultural taboos um and so i thought that was a pretty remarkable story and there were a couple of archaeologists from madagascar involved who uh were able to add some of that kind of cultural perspective to what uh, the researchers who were uh, French uh, uh, were finding there. Hmm. Um, if you were uh, if you were marooned on an island, what food would you uh, want to have with you? If you could only have one, <laughs> I'm going to cheat. I'm going to say tacos because <laughs> it's not cheating. It's not just an answer. Tacos because <laughs> uh, because that is obviously a catch-all for a wide range of fillings. Sure. So, um, yeah, I would. I would. I, and I would doesn't be, require tools to of, eat. Of course, so. doesn't require tools to eat. Yeah, <laughs> um, and it's spicy and delicious. So. Yeah, I would pick tacos. Nice. Um, well, we're we're pretty much at the end of the show. Um, is there any? Do you have any any articles you're working on that people should should look at? I definitely encourage all all of you out there listening to check out archaeology.org, and, and it is also a print magazine. Yeah, so absolutely. You can subscribe to the to the print magazine. But do you have any any articles coming up that you're working on that you want to mention? Um, you know, we're constantly sort of putting together lots and lots of material. Um. I am I am excited about this story that I'm going to go report about uh, uh, the I mentioned the dental plaque yeah. uh, and there's a, a researcher who's um, doing some really amazing things in terms of reconstructing not just dietary proteins but um, but uh, bacteria so looking at actually both pathogens uh, disease causing bacteria and the ancient sort of microbiome the oral microbiome. Yeah. Um, so I think that's going to be a really cool kind of sciencey uh, sort of piece, um, but yeah, it's, there's always something different in our in our pages. So I'm I'm working on a piece now about a a, a Civil War era a shipwreck in Savannah Harbor. Um, so I mean, it comes the stuff comes from all over. Right. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you very much uh, for joining me today on the on Feast Your Ears, um, and thanks everybody who uh, who was listening to this show big thank you to Kristen Baylor who's my producer here and uh, to Liz Smith who engineers this show every Wednesday and please take a moment to like the show on Facebook and iTunes see you next week thank you thanks for 
listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 non-profit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.